0: All right, saints, if you would, please open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. If you don't know where that is, go to Matthew, back up two books. You'll find yourselves right there as you find yourself there in Zechariah. Um, Move forward to chapter 9, move down to verse 9. And what we want to do is this. We looked at um, just chapters 9, 10, 11 last Wednesday in its entirety but I want to focus on one aspect here this morning. And it's, it's a prophecy that you know is, is locked in here in Zechariah. And we're going to be going through it not too long from now. But I wanted to give you an anchor to be looking forward as we come to that area of Palm Sunday. And then, of course, to Resurrection Sunday as we celebrate just the glorious um, resurrection Here in chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah, it declares this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. This is what we're seeing here, and it's a prophecy that we know well. It's a prophecy that as we look to Palm Sunday, everything is declaring. But I think it's important to recognize the key, and the title for this message this morning is, Your King is Coming to You. This is the heart And so what happens is when we look at verse 9 and it declares your king is coming to you. This verse 9 here comes directly after that passage verses 1 through 8 that actually declares and prophesies of Alexander the Great. We looked at that kind of in depth on on Wednesday, but there's a writer who was um, basically working for the Romans. His name is Josephus, and in his book 11, in the 8th chapter, he writes about Alexander coming, and so what happens is this. In in Josephus, it puts the scene kind of like this. After Alexander, and where verses 1 through 8 declare... After Alexander had, you know, came and conquered Tyre, had conquered Sidon and Damascus, had then gone further to the south and there took on the the, the cities there of the, the Philistines, he came and he took Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron and Ashdod. And after he took those, what Josephus declares is this. Now, Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go up to Jerusalem. And Jadua, the high priest, when he heard that, was in agony, under terror, not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians, since the king was displeased at his foregoing disobedience. Jerusalem had been in rebellion And is is not leaning towards Alexander coming and conquering the known world. And what begins to happen is this. As Jadu the high priest is struggling, how do I go out and meet this king? How do I go out and meet Alexander? Now Alexander, as they know, that basically Tyre, if you're familiar with that city, Something unique began to happen. The Assyrians spent five years trying to take Tyre, and they failed miserably. Then the Babylonians come, and they spend 13 years trying to take Tyre, and they failed miserably. And Alexander comes on the scene, and he conquers Tyre in seven months. You understand, Alexander doesn't mess around. And he's conquered Damascus. He's conquered Tyre. He's conquered Syria. He's conquered the the Philistine cities. And now he's coming to Jerusalem. And what are they thinking? We're doomed. We are doomed. He's terrified because he knows that Alexander is displeased because of their past disobedience. And yet amazingly, God would speak to Jaddua in a vision. And he would tell this high priest, I want you to adorn the city. In other words, make this city festive. Put in welcome signs. Welcome, Alexander. Come on in. We're we're open to you. He said, adorn the city. Open the gates. I want you to open the gates. Welcome him in. And then I want you to send everyone out to meet with him. I want you all to dress in white robes. I want you to go out and the priest dress in your garments. High priest, I want you to wear your high priestly garments. Even, even, I want you to wear your breastplate of gold. Deck out and go and greet Alexander, the one who's displeased, the one who's conquered all these other nations, and just open your doors to him. Isn't that amazing? That here, God gives the high priest a vision. To don't cower behind the walls, but in a sense, he says, I want you to rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. I want you to shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. This king is coming. Go out and greet him. Celebrate this king. Celebrate this leader. And so as God would speak to Jadu in the vision and he would tell him all those things and then eventually they would go and they would greet Alexander and then they would share with Alexander a portion of the book of Daniel and then Alexander would perceive in his mind that he was that one solitary Greek that was going to come and conquer and beat the Persians. And he said, oh, that sounds like me. Pat myself on the back. This is a good thing. And and as he does so, what happens is that he recognizes that this here prophecy tells him he's going to do everything that was in his heart. He's going to conquer the world. He's going to conquer the Persians. And then what happens is this. Josephus writes again, he says, and when he had said this to Parmieno, which is his assistant, and had given the high priest his right hand so alexander gives the high priest his right hand and the priest run alongside by him he comes into the city and he goes up to the temple he offered a sacrifice to god Isn't it amazing that here, all these nations have been destroyed. All these nations are being conquered by the power of this king. And rather than resisting the king, God says, open up and rejoice. Rejoice to this leader. And we begin to see a little bit of how verse 9, in one way, talks about Alexander. Rejoice! Celebrate this king! Although he's come as a conquering king to all the other nations, he's come to give you peace. And you would think they're scratching their yarmulkes, thinking, why would this be? How come all these other nations are destroyed? Why would God allow him to give us peace? But what they hadn't realized is that God had approached Alexander there when he was in Macedonia with a vision of this priest who was decked out exactly as the high priest. And he would come to him and he would look and he'd say, this is the guy. And so all of a sudden now, keep in mind that they're here to celebrate this king. Now, I try to do some research to see if Alexander the Great, the conquering king, this general this one man who conquered the known world in record time had ever ridden a donkey. There's no record of it. So we can see what happens here in verse 9 that in one sense they're telling you, okay, don't worry because Alexander is not coming here to conquer. And it doesn't say that Alexander, he was given a donkey and rode into Jerusalem. We, We don't know that. We know that they were supposed to celebrate this king who was destroying all the rest of the, the nations, conquering them one after another in record time. Even a nation like Tyre, who was 14 years of, of being besieged and, and being assaulted by Assyria and the Babylons. And he literally, he, Alexander takes it in seven months. Seven months. And he tells Jerusalem, although they're terrified, although they're panicked, he said, do this, dress up in white robes, go out in your priestly garment, welcome this king, celebrate him. And they do. And he comes in peace. And he says, listen, I going to bless you guys. I'm going to make sure that on the seventh year, you guys don't have to pay taxes. You just worship your God. We'll set up rules and regulations for everybody else, but you guys stick with the law of your God. Because he's already spoken to me so that you could have peace. And I find this interesting that here, although this king is destroying so much, that he's going to give them peace. And understand that Jesus Christ, when he comes, what is he going to do? He's going to conquer the nations. He's going to come on a white horse at the end. He comes now to Jerusalem in peace. But he's going to come and he's going to conquer the nations. But what is he going to do? He is going to destroy all the other nations, but he is going to give Jerusalem, he's going to give Zion peace. And so when this king comes to Jerusalem, he makes this statement, rejoice greatly. Do you understand? Not not just celebrate, but he's a man, rejoice greatly. Just just amp up your celebration to a way that is absolutely incredible. Rejoice greatly, he says, O daughter of Zion. Shout, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. How absolutely incredible it is that God, when he refers now initially to Alexander coming in, who's conquered the world, and he says, but he's going to give you peace, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's taken out all the Philistine cities, taken the cities to the north, but he's here to give you peace. And then Jesus, although he's going to come and conquer every nation, he's come to do what? Give peace to Jerusalem. What makes Jerusalem different? It's Zion. It's the city of God. It's the city of David. This is where he put his house. As we look to this, as we see this, how incredible is this passage And so when the Messiah comes, when the King of Kings comes, he tells Jerusalem, I want you to rejoice greatly. I want you to shout. And this is what they do. If you're familiar with that passage there in Matthew chapter 21, I want to read to you the first 10 verses because they do shout. They do get this part right. And as they begin to shout here in Matthew 21, the first 10 verses, we're then going to look at Luke 19, and we're going to realize they're shouting for the wrong reasons. They are going to shout. But what happens is this. God says, I want you to shout, yes, but I want you to shout for the right reasons. I want you to celebrate, yes, but I want you to celebrate for the right reasons. Let's look at Matthew 21 for just a second. Read the first 10 verses. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before, and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna is the son of to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he'd come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who's like this? See, they get the shouting right. They get it all right. They're celebrating. They're celebrating. But what happens is this. In Luke 19, verse 37 through 42, we begin to see that they are shouting, but they kind of do it for the wrong reasons. They missed the point because here in Luke 19, 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're they're, they're celebrating. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, as he drew near the city, they're celebrating. But as he drew near the city, notice what it says here in verse 42, he wept over it. He began to weep over Jerusalem, saying in verse 42, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You missed it. I'm here, you're celebrating, you're rejoicing, you're getting the rejoicing greatly and the shouting right. And that's important. It's important to celebrate. But what happens is this, when you miss the reason that you're celebrating. And this is the problem. We celebrate the wrong things. We have this assumption of God that he's going to do what they thought Jesus well, You're going to fix all the outward. This is a problem. That's a problem. All these outward issues are weighing on me. All these outward things are troubling me. My heart is confused. My heart is torn My heart is sad and all these things are going on in my heart and I'm blaming everything on the outward. Yet God can do a work in the heart that no matter what is on the outward, my heart is at peace. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fires are raging all around them, but they themselves, what? They're untouched. The smoke doesn't even affect them. Only the bonds are broken. That's the only thing that happened to them when all this outward chaos is there. They're at peace. Why? Because they're with the Son of God, the fourth man in the fire. And so we look to these things and we see the heart of God. But what happens is this. If they'd only known the things that made for their peace, the problem is, is they came with wrong expectations. They were thinking the things that are going to make for my peace is what? Get rid of the Romans. Let us now have control. And keep in mind that if they got rid of the Romans, who would be in control? Well, let me just clue you in a little bit. The same group of people who orchestrated through false lies, false trials, the death of Jesus Christ. That's who would be in charge. So, who do you want? Romans bad? Religious leaders good? No, they're all bad. They're all bad. And once we get that inside our heart, we realize that what Jesus came is not to put Rome in charge or to put the the, the religious leaders in charge. He was there to what? Bring salvation to them all. This is his work. Not to say you're good and you're good. He said, You're all bad. I'm good. I'm the one that's come to fix the real problem. The problem is, is inside your heart and your heart itself, the outward just stirs up and shows you that there's an area still with your heart that you haven't surrendered to me. And so when you come with wrong expectations, thinking that God is like a genie, that you rub your Bible and poof, he answers your wishes. And this is what God does. Well, keep in mind, fix our problems. I want an outward peace versus what? Just let me have an inward peace. Don't take away the burdens from me. Strengthen me with your spirit. Strengthen me with your words and give me peace that that I can trust the next chapter in my life because I know the author and I know that he's good and I know that he's got a plan. That's the key. Now, what happens is this. People want two things from their government. I've been pondering this. They want two things from their government. One, they want an outward peace. They want an outward peace versus an inward peace. In other words, I want the government to make sure that nothing outwardly causes me stress. In other words, the things that I I want from my, my government, the things that I want from my leaders is this. Fix the problems with inflation. I want to save some money. I want sickness gone. Give me good health care. And, and then we, we look to this and say, and I want you to deal with crime. Isn't that kind of it? Give me more money. Keep me healthy and stop crime. Those are the bases. Just fix the outward. Because if you don't fix the outward, then guess what? I'm stressing on the inward. But guess what? You can do and have none of that work in the outward. You can be sick. You can literally have no money as the government takes more and more of it, inflation takes more of it, and, and amazingly, is you can be in an area of crime and you can still have peace. Why? <laughs> He's here. And, and I, I trust him leading my life. I trust him watching over my life. And, and, and I think that's really what we want from our government. Isn't that who you vote for? The people who promise you more money, the people who promise you health care, and the people who promises I'll deal with crime. That's it. That's one of the things we want. We want the outward. And the other thing that we want from our government is this, non-interference, How many times have you seen that argument play out? I want non-interference. In other words, let me live my life without your interference. I don't want you to basically tell me that I have to be in a lockdown, that I can't go anywhere. Don't tell me I have to, you know, have a vaccine because you think it's best for me. Don't tell me I have to wear masks because you think it's best for me. I want to have free speech. Let me say what I want when I want. Don't, don't, don't shut me down. I want you to stay out of my private life so that I can live my life. Isn't that what we want from our leaders? Outward peace and non-interference. But here's the crazy thing. What we do as Christians is we take that mindset into our relationship with our king. We want Jesus Christ and we celebrate him and we say, Jesus, I want you to fix all the outward issues in my life and I want non interference. Just let me live my life. But understand what Jesus does. He doesn't promise you outward peace. He doesn't say that I'm going to stop the government from doing this, I'm going to give you more money. He doesn't say those things. He says, I'm going to give you salvation. I'm going to give you me and I'm going to give you my peace. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you life through this word. That's what I'm going to, I'm going to fix the inward. Jesus never promises peace on the outward, but he does say this, regardless of what's going on in the outward, I can give you peace. Not as the world gives, not as the world promises, but never delivers, but I will give you my peace. I will give you my joy. I'll give you hope in me, in me alone. And then amazingly, he doesn't promise non-interference either. Think about what Jesus does. According to Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, let me just share with you what the Lord does promise. He says, I will interfere with everything. I even want to control your thoughts. Now, think about what we want. I want the government, don't don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to think. Don't tell me what to say. God says, I'm going to tell you what to think. I'm going to tell you what to say. I'm going to tell you everything what to do. Do you realize how the things that we declare we don't want the government doing, we as Christians often say, Jesus, I want you to be a non-interference king. But what Romans 12, 1 and 2 actually make this declaration as far as the interference of Jesus Christ, but he says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. In other words, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in this body, which he redeemed, which he, per- which he purchased. He says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do you realize the whole thing that he's saying, what I want from you is I want to control your mind and I want to control your body. I want absolute interference. I want absolute authority as your king. I want to control you. Weird concept, isn't it? We tell the government, get out of my mind, get out of my life. And Jesus said, no, I want to get in your mind. I want want absolute and total control over who you are. It's amazing that what Jesus declares is this, not only do I want control over your body and over your thinking, but I want to tell you as a person what you should even say, how you should speak to one another. You don't even have the right to say, I want to just give him a piece of my mind. God says, you don't give him a piece of him. You give him my mind. You give him my heart. Why? Because you're thinking your heart's all wrong. God said, I want to tell you what to say. I want to tell you what to think. If you are a boss, I want to tell you how to be a boss. If you're an employee, I want to tell you how to be that employee. If you are a child, I want to tell you how to respect your parents, to honor them. If you are a spouse, I want to tell you as a husband what you need to do to glorify me. If you're a wife, I want to tell you what you should do to glorify me. If you're a parent, I want to tell you how you need to act to glorify me. Do you understand Jesus doesn't promise non-interference? He says total interference. I want authority over these areas. I want you to turn to Colossians. And in the book of Colossians, something that's amazing, I want to start reading in chapter 3. I'm going to read from verses 12 through verse 23, just so that you can have an idea of what I'm saying. God wants control of everything. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against you, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. Do you understand? Live your life to my glory and forgive everyone for their mistakes. Now, that's not what we do. We live our life for our glory, and we want to tell everybody what the other person is doing wrong. I mean, think of what's happening in our nation. What, what's happening right now in the media is they're trying to say everything that Russia is doing wrong, everything that Ukraine is doing right, and the bottom line, everybody what God wants salvation. This is what he wants. You can form a narrative, as we talked about last week, but the narrative doesn't make the truth. The truth that Jesus wants is he wants our hearts. He wants our life. He wants us to be forever with him. That's receiving Christ as our savior and, and, and accepting his work and then accepting him as king. That means every area of my life. What we see here is I want you to put on this this conduct that's holy and beloved and tender mercies and kindness humility and meet in his long suffering bearing with one another forgiving one another and then in verse 14 it says but above all these things put on love you understand how he's controlling everything? It's not like the government. I want non-interference He says I want complete interference. I want absolute authority over your life. And then when he says above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are also called in one body. Be thankful. Let all the word Of Christ dwell in you richly. Do you understand? He says, I want you to live a life of gratitude. Just gratitude. And gratitude is this it's not just getting a gift from God and going your way, it's getting a gift from God and coming back and realize, I got a gift from you. I want to worship. Remember the 10 lepers? Jesus saw the 10 lepers Master, have mercy on us. Go show yourself to the priest. Nine of them saw that they were healed, continued to go to priests. One of them, a Samaritan, when he saw that he was healed, he turned around, came back to Jesus, fell down at Jesus' feet and began to worship him. And Jesus said, oh my goodness, do you see this guy here? Now where are the nine? Weren't there ten that were healed? Do you understand? He wants us to live a life of recognizing your blessings recognizing that every single day is a blessing. The events in that day are a blessing because they're going to teach you more of your heart that you have to repent of and more of his heart that you want to pursue. As we look to these things, it's so important that he says, I want you to live a life of gratitude. And then in verse 16 here of Colossians 3, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace and with your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. He said, I want you to speak my truth. Do you realize what happens? Our narrative in today is this. Right now, the headlines are are, are Russian and Ukraine, Russian and Ukraine. The problem is, is in Russia and Ukraine and America and in all these other countries, there are souls that are lost that God wants reached for his kingdom. Because there are people who are dying. And when they die, guess what? They don't have another choice. Now, the choices that they made here to either receive or reject Christ is it. That's why it's so important. Receive Jesus now while it's time, while you have that opportunity. And now, don't think that you have to have a war. We could leave here today and get in an accident, it could happen. It's Milwaukee. You've seen the way they drive. And so you don't know what tomorrow could bring. We could wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden we, the, something happens to us physically. The doctor says, hey, you have cancer. You got weeks to live. Those are the things that happen in our day and age. You don't have a guarantee for tomorrow. Get right with Jesus Christ today. As we look to this, I think it's so important that he makes this statement in verse 17, whatever you do in word and deed, you understand, I want interference in everything you do. I want absolute authority over everything. You don't get to say what you want to say. You get to say my heart. I want you to speak of of me. Teach them and admonish them in the psalms and hymns. Teach people to worship God. Show people that you live a life that's worshiping God. This is the heart. And then he says this in verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as fitting in the Lord. In other words, wives glorify God in your submission. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Love, become a servant leader who loves, and not bitter. Don't don't, don't be frustrated because, you know, you're serving them and serving them and serving them. God is teaching you what it is to be a servant leader, to truly be ahead. He wants to control the wife. He wants to control the husband. Children, verse 20, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, in other words, parents, do not provoke your children to... Um, your children, lest they become discouraged, bond servants, in other words, employees, obeying all things, your masters or your employers, according to the flesh, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. In verse 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Do you realize what here God begins to show us? See, the two things we want from our government, outward peace and non-interference, is exactly what we want from jesus christ i want outward peace and non-interference and jesus says this i'm not going to grant you an outward peace so we we worship god we shout we we, we rejoice greatly because what jesus has saved me but when he saved me we're saying and i want you to fix this i want you to fix that i want you he says no no, no i want to fix your heart Looks. Look at your heart and what the areas of your heart. And then he says, and I want non-interference. Let, let me just live the life the way that I think I should live to glorify you. And God said, oh, no, no, no. I've very specifically put down in my word that there are no exceptions to this. What you need to do to walk with me in obedience. No exceptions. Isn't that amazing? How what we want from our government, we want it from Jesus. And Jesus, you're not getting it from me. In fact, you're getting just the opposite. You're going to get absolute authority from me. And what happens is this, this passage that we're looking at in Zechariah 9, 9 makes this statement, the king is coming to you. And so the question comes is, who is this king that's coming? Who is the king that is coming? And what we see in this passage in Zechariah 9, 9 is there are seven lessons about this king seven lessons. Now of all the numbers that we could look at, it's seven. It's the number of completion. And I know what some of you are thinking. Oh my goodness, Lowell, you've already been talking for 20 some minutes and now you're starting the seven lessons. Now you're going to start the message. I want you to understand that within these seven things, let's look at this very clearly. He talks about rejoicing greatly. He talks about the, the shouting and now here's the thing. The important lessons is what's the proper reason I'm shouting? What's the proper reason I'm rejoicing greatly? What are the lessons of the king? The first off is this. It declares this. He's your king. Notice what it says. Behold, your king. Highlight that. It's your king. It's your king. He's Personal. He knows you. He loves you. He's leading you. He's teaching you. He's blessing you. He's your king. It's important to recognize this. There's a passage, you know it well. Let me read it to you. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, it says Now I saw heaven open and a white horse in hue. Satan was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You understand? He's the king. We're the armies. And as we come as an army, we're all in white robes, we're all on these horses. And what happens? He comes and he alone destroys. Just with the sword that comes out of his mouth, the word of God crumbles people in the same way as when he was there on the Mount of Olives and they said, are you Jesus? He said, I am. What happened? All the people with clubs and they just fell over. They couldn't stand up against the name, the power of God. He lets them get up. He lets them save face. Who are you seeking? Jesus and others. All right. Told you I am. But let these others go. Uh, amazingly, we have to understand that he is our king, personal, intimate. It is about being our king. There's a passage, jot it down, Colossians chapter 1. I want to read verses 9 through 14, the key being verse 13, if you want to make a note. But it says this, Now for this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. You have to know what his will is, and in wisdom and in spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Understand, know his heart, walk his heart, simple. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and then it says this in verse 13 he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son Do you understand we're no longer enemies we're citizens we're no longer enemies we're children He's conveyed us from, delivered us from the power of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of his son, of his love. And then verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Do you understand how personal of God he is? To every single one of you, says, I've taken you from death, and I brought you into life. I've taken you from darkness, and I brought you into the light. I loved you while you were yet sinners. I died for you. I've set my love upon you before the foundation of the world. I knew you. I called you. I wanted you. He's a personal, personal king. He's your king. John puts it this way in his gospel, and I want to read to you just a portion of it. There in John chapter 18, I want to read verses 36 and 37 that declares, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of my world, my servants would fight. Do you understand? We do the will of the king so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Do you understand? We're his But when we're his, we're no longer citizens of earth. We live here, we're we're, we're ambassadors, we we dwell here, but we're actually, what, citizens of heaven. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And then in verse 37, Paul said, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king for this reason I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Do you understand? I'm here, and the reason I've come isn't to conquer the world, but to tell you that the world is dead in it's sin. The world is cursed because of sin. I've come to take the curse. I've come to redeem man. I've come to give you life. This is truth. Truth isn't what the world is declaring. The truth is what I've declared. That the world itself is dead and I've come to give it life. And so... Then he says, I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. When you're of him, you hear his voice. How personal it is. We hear him because he's our king. Do you understand? He's your king. That's the first beautiful lesson that Zechariah teaches. He's your king. The second lesson is what? He's your king. You understand? Yeah, he's your king, but he's your king. There's something amazing. He's your king. He's the reigning king. You are his subject. In other words, you're subject to him. He's the rightful Lord. He deserves control of every aspect of your life. If he says go to war, you go to war. If he says preach this, you preach this. When he calls you to do whatever he calls you to do, realize that he is your king. And I love the fact because when we realize he's our king, like like we we learned about there in, in, in John 18, he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But I've called them now to what? To bear witness of this truth. The same truth that I bear witness of, I want them to declare it too. They need to hear my voice. Why? He's the king. Listen to what he says. And as a king, keep in mind that he is absolutely and perfectly in control in all events. We talked about that when we went through this whole thing in COVID. He's in control. God's not on his throne standing up thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? God is absolutely in control of everything that goes on. There's a couple passages I want you to be aware of. Jot these down if you're a note taker. The first is John chapter 7 verse 30. The second will be John chapter 8 verse 20. Saying basically the same thing. But in John 7 verse 30 it says this. Therefore, they sought to take him. This is by force, hurt him. They sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Man had a plan. He has authority. He's absolutely in control. You're going to think, oh, I want to take him out now. You're not taking him out now. There's nothing you can do. We see here that in John chapter 8, As we look now at verse 20, it says kind of the same thing. These were Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. You understand there's an authority that Jesus has even when they're arresting him. He said, what? You got to let these others go. You can't take them. Only me, And I'm allowing myself to come with you. Why? I could just say I am again. You could all fall down. I could just walk away. But my hour has come. This is what I desire to do. I want to bring salvation to this lost and dying world. He's absolutely, positively in control. In John chapter 19. Verses 10 through 12, Pilate asked this question when Jesus doesn't answer him. Pilate said in John 19 verse 10, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Pilate said, I'm a king. I have authority. <laughs> what does Jesus say in verse 11? He said, listen, you could have no power at all against me. Unless what? Unless it had been given to you from above therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin Pilate's freaking out now you know I could do this I'm a king I can make (laughs) you can't do anything there's nothing I am the one with absolute power I'm the one that's absolute authority this is why it's important to realize one he's your king but he's your king he's sovereign our duty is to yield to his word yield to his heart yield to his voice and that's the 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 second lesson and the third lesson is this we're here in Zechariah verse 9 it says behold and I love this he makes this statement your king is coming to you to realize he's coming this is the third lesson He's coming to you. Another way to read this or to make the interpretation or he's coming for you. He's not just coming to you, but he's coming for you. The, the, in the, the meaning being this, he's coming for your benefit. The Lord is coming to benefit you. What happens is this. He's coming to do one thing, to fix man's deepest need that we could have intimacy with God, that we could connect with God, that we could worship God, that we could do the one thing that we were created to do, worship him. But he has to deal with the sin nature first. He's coming to you. He has come for our benefit to deal with the deepest need that we have. And then we can what? Well, we're going to receive the benefits of his authority and his power. The enemy can't hold us. The enemy can't condemn us. The enemy can't accuse us. Why? Because his blood was shed that every one of the sins that the enemy says, he did this and he did this and he did this. And God said, yes, he did. But the payment for that sin is paid in full. The blood of Jesus was shed. And this is the heart that we begin to see, that understand that he's coming for our benefit. For God so loved the world, that he gave. He gave his son and his son's life so that whoever would believe in that sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, we would not perish, but we would have eternal life. Do you want He came for our benefit. He came, God gave, so that we could have life. Understand that he's coming to you. Your king is coming to you. He's coming for you. He's coming for your benefit. That's the third lesson that we learn and then we learn this fourth lesson. After Zechariah says, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just. Do you understand who this king is? He is a just king. In other words, it means he's lawful. He is right. But also means this. He's uncompromising. Don't think that as he's your king, you can say, well, I'll listen to these things you say but I won't listen to these other things. I like these. In other words, I want your word to be Burger King. I want you to do it my way. I want you to give me this, but but hold the mayo, hold the onions, hold this, but but add a little bit more ketchup and pickles, if you will. I want it my way. And we say, I want you to hold the the, the law against me, but I want you to heap on the judgment to those who are against me. See, I want all judgment to them, but I want grace for me. Heap on the grace, a little extra if you please. And and I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I just expect grace to cover. I don't want to have to be controlled by you and by your word and by your heart. And this is why it says he's just, he's uncompromising. Do you realize that when he comes, he judges the entire world with the sword of his mouth, and yet that same judgment that he gives to the world should be ours. It should be ours. But he said this, I've redeemed you through the blood of my son. You've accepted his payment for the payment of your sins and the penalties, so I'll, I'll receive you, not because you're better, but because you've accepted Christ and you're redeemed. That's it. And I think it's important to realize here that he's just. And and, and John in his epistle puts it this way, that when you confess your sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. In other words, the forgiveness of sins is, is right and perfect and good and uncompromising. In other words, it was dealt with. The blood was shed. We recognize he paid the price for all my sins. I don't have to pay the price anymore. He's just. And once the price is paid once, guess what? You don't have to pay the second time. It's already paid in full. There's nothing you can do to add to his finished work. So he's just. And this is what he says. Behold, your king is coming. Your king is coming. Your king is coming for your benefit. He's just. And then it says this. It says he's just and having salvation. This is is the fifth lesson that we learn. First, he is your king. Then he is your king. Then he's coming. He's just. And now he's having salvation. He's delivered us. He has rescued us. He is triumphant and he is victorious. So understand that the same triumphant and victorious that That There we looked at Alexander being to the rest of the world. Jesus Christ has been to the rest of the world. He's also what? Triumphant over our sin. He's victorious over our sin. That as he blesses us, as we rejoice him coming to do work in our heart and to take absolute control of our lives, we yield to that. Why? Because he's victorious over our deepest need, our sin. And this is why I think it's so important that it's having salvation, There's a passage, you know it well, I just want to read it to you to remind you of it once again. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, And you, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit within, now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He is having salvation. He brings the greatest victory. He brings us from death into life. He brings us from darkness into light. He brings us from being separated into having the most incredible intimacy that we could possibly have. But the intimacy only grows as what? As we give him absolute authority over our lives. The intimacy hinders as what? As we take away that authority and say, I want non-interference of this part of my life. You lose intimacy. Everything that you close him off to in your life, that you don't allow him to have authority, you lose intimacy because he's not there in that area. But realize that every area that you give him control, you're blessed. Like, oh my goodness, think about what what we can do with an object and what a true artisan can do with an object. I mean, you think about what someone can do with a piece of wood. What can you do with a piece of wood? Now, Now think about what it can do to a true craftsman, what he does with that piece of wood. What we can do with rocks, try to chisel out a face, but a true craftsman can do what make beautiful things. And this is the difference between who we are and who he is. He's absolutely perfect. He has the perfect plan for our lives, salvation. And, and I think so we, we look at the, the fifth lesson and then the sixth lesson of our king is what? That he's lowly. This is what it says here. He is just having salvation. He's lowly and riding on a donkey. He's lowly. The, the, the term lowly means patient. It means Humble. It means, well, basically lowly. Like we we know that passage in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7. Let me read this to you. Twice it makes a statement. He opens not his mouth. But it says in in Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He's lowly. He takes the penalty that was ours and he takes it. He receives it. And and just in case you're wondering, you know, how desperate was that punishment? How, How incredible was that pain? Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're not with me. He literally, think about this. The Trinity, who's always been perfectly one for the first time in all of history, was ripped apart. For those three hours where he took the penalty, he took the wrath of God upon the sin, my sin, your sin, that was put on him on the cross, God turned his back on his son, that Jesus didn't have intimacy with the Father for that time. He said, let this cup pass from me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't have connection with you. For the first time in all of eternity, our intimacy is shredded and ripped asunder so that these who are separate, these who are no longer yours, can come back. Absolutely incredible to see what happens, how lowly he is. When we think about lowliness, remember what he says, for the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, Mark ten forty-five. He didn't come and say, oh, now I'm here, serve me. He said, now. No, I'm here. I'm here to serve you. And this is the heart. And he proved it. Remember in John 13 where, where after supper that he laid aside his garment and he took a towel and he began to gird himself and he began to wash his disciples' feet. He says, you see what I've done? You go and you serve in the same manner. You go and you do these things. It's important to see how he served. And to realize when it comes to that whole point of the humility of, of Christ and really where he is and how he did it, I think one of the greatest portions of all scripture is there found in Philippians chapter two, verses five through nine. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. And so He didn't consider robbery, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself yet further and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above all names. You understand the humility? Being equal with God, not consider robbery. And this is amazing not consider robbery to be equal with them. He didn't consider it a lesser thing. To be equal with God, the Father. He said, it's just who I am. But he humbled himself and humbled himself. So you understand he's lowly. He's lowly. And why we think as men that we think, well, now that I've reached a certain level of spiritual maturity or I reached a level of authority like in my house or, or in the church, what do I do? Well, you don't lord it. You serve. The Son of Man, God Himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, to give His life. So we begin to see that sixth lesson is, is He's lowly. And the last lesson, the seventh lesson, is this He's lowly and riding on a donkey. <clears throat> the donkey's an interesting creature, the donkey's an interesting thing. The donkey itself signifies a few things, the donkey itself signifies service. You ever heard you, you put loads on donkeys? And donkeys are, are there to just carry the loads and carry the loads and carry the loads. That's what we do. Their service. And donkeys are also the they, they have this, this signifying of humility. Now, now think about this. If you have a parade, can you imagine the parade? And rather than having all these people in the the, the parade that are riding on these magnificent horses. Can you imagine them all just plodding along on a donkey? I mean, think about it. I can't imagine to be watching the Super Bowl and having a Bud, you know, beer commercial, Budweiser, and here, rather than having those majestic steeds pull their little carriage to have a couple of donkeys, pull a little cart of beer. You don't see that you understand how, how donkeys are humble. They're, they're, they're not the kind of one that you say, wow, look at this. I mean, you think of the rodeos. You don't see these cowboys saying, I'm going to break a donkey. <laughs> no, you, you want these heavy-duty, powerful horses. It's always the horses that are there. You don't see the lone ranger <laughs> there, there on this donkey. No, 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 no. He's on this magnificent horse. Do you understand how, how donkeys signify humility and also suffering? The, the donkey itself is what? He's just a beast of burden. No one no one says, oh, I, I, want, I want to honor you and clean you and all these other things. You're a donkey. Keep in mind, the donkey had no form or comeliness that people would desire. Donkey you wouldn't, just like Jesus. No former comingness. See, there are, there are people who, who we think, oh, you look regal and you seem amazing. That's what Saul was. Saul was this king, head and shoulders above everybody else, great looking. Like, wow, you, you look like a king. You've got to be a king. And God says, no, 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 wait, wait, hold on a second. See, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So be careful about what you're seeing because although the donkey signifies this, the service, humility, the suffering, the donkey also does one thing. It signifies peace. It signifies peace. I don't know when it first started, but tradition has it this. When a king would ride into the city on horses, it meant victorious, conquering war this is what Jesus does in Revelation. He says, I'm going to come, and I'm I'm not going to come in peace, but I'm going to come battling on a horse. That's war. But Jesus, initially, he comes on a donkey. He comes with peace. There's a passage. I want you to be aware of it. If you want, you can turn there. I'm going to start reading in 1 Kings chapter 1. Now, it begins this in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. This is where um, one of David's sons, Adonijah, seeks to usurp the the kingship he wants to become king rather than Solomon but it makes this statement in 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 5 then Adonijah the son of Haggath exalted himself saying I will be king and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him I want majesty, horses, glory, run before, say, Adonijah is king, Adonijah is king. Do you understand his arrogance? Do you understand that he is exalting himself, saying, I am going to be the king. I've chosen what I'm going to do. And then what happens in this, in verse 22, then And just then, while she was still talking with the king, Nathan, the prophet, also came in. So Bathsheba's saying, what's going on? What's going on? I thought Solomon was going to be the king. Nathan comes in, the prophet, who also came in, and they told the king, saying, here is Nathan, the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord, O king, Have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and shall he be on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatted cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's son and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And look, they are eating and drinking before him. And they say, long live king Adonijah, but he's not invited me, your servant, or Zadok the priest, nor Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, nor your servant Solomon. Has this thing been done by my lord the king? And have you not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? So who's supposed to be after you? Then King David answered in verse 28 and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king took an oath and said, as the Lord lives, who redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, surely Solomon, your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, and I certainly will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, let My Lord King David, live forever. And the king said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king also said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, note this here in verse 33, have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule understand David said I want the world to know that he's humble he's my son and he's come in peace not for war but peace have him ride on my own meal and take him down to Gibeon or to Gihon and there let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say long live king Solomon And you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne and he shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Look at verse 40. So all the people went up after him and the people played flutes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. You understand as now Solomon comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, there is great rejoicing There is great shouting so that literally it's like the earth is splitting with the rejoicing of what happens. God has brought a king of wisdom and peace. The one that will transform all of Zion. He's a servant and he will be a servant and he's going to minister and he's going to bring about the very temple of God. And this is what we begin to see. And it's about really saying, I do want to shout. I do want to rejoice. I do want to glory, but I want to do it for the right reasons, not to fix the outward and not, not to, to, to let me have my life and you stay out of it, but you're going to fix the inward. I'm going to yield so you can do that. And I will give you absolute authority over my life, not non-interference, but absolute authority over everything in my life. This is what you deserve. And I think this is what happens This is what happens when when we worship God, but we worship him with with wrong expectations. And what happens is this passage in Zechariah so perfectly, perfectly gives us the seven lessons of why we need to shout, of why we need to rejoice greatly, because he's my king. Oh, he's my king means he's authority. And he's coming to me. He's coming for me. He's coming so that... I can receive the benefit of not having to die in my sins but having life eternal. He's just. He's absolutely just. He's righteous. He's uncompromising. I know that he's in an authority and he's going to do what he wants to do in my life. I'm either going to do it willingly or I'm going to go through the harder road. Choose what you want. Choose what you want. You can either yield to it or he's going to make you yield to it, but he is authority. And he's having salvation. He's going to deal with the one deep need that we all have. And and keep in mind, the world wants to distract you from what? The salvation of the lost. Do you understand why God is allowing this whole thing with Russia and Ukraine? Because he wants us not, not, not to pick sides, but to say, Lord, time is short. And we need to pray. We need to pray for salvation to come. We need to pray for the, the churches in Russia, the churches in Ukraine, the churches in Poland are receiving these, it's give them hope. The hope isn't in this world. The hope is what? You don't have to be a citizen of this world. You can be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven that when you die and we will all die that we understand that we have a home. And then he says, but you have to come in this mindset of what? Being lowly, being lowly humbled as he is humbled, that we need to wash one another's feet, that we need to, in a sense, ride on a donkey, that we need to become the servants. We need to be in humility. We need to have to to realize that our life is going to be one of suffering and burdens and, and, and servitude. What? To our king who deserves it all. And this is the heart. And may we come with that mindset, learning these beautiful seven lessons of our king. Amen. Father, you are so good, you are so gracious, you are so merciful. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and how you work. We do ask, Lord, that as you've spoken to us through your word, that you would continue to speak as we come to this place of communion, celebrating you, recognizing, Lord, that in the same way as there are so many people that have wrong expectations of your coming and what you're going to do in our lives I think we have wrong expectations of communion and what it means and what it wants to do in our lives. So teach us, Lord, what it is to be your servant. Teach us what it is that that you are our king and you are coming, you are just, you are having salvation, you are lowly and you're riding on this donkey. Teach us, Lord, to be like you, renewing our mind. Giving our body as this living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Do the work in us and through us. Through this time we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, amen.